The reading today can be found on page 39 of the, blue, of the Bibles you've been given. We're reading from Genesis chapter 37, and it's beginning at the first verse. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was told before doing this, uh, this talk that there will be a good number of children here, and I've counted about four. Um, so the talk is pitched young, but we're all children of God, so we can, we can work with that. Can I have all of the children who would like to come out here and stand underneath the bubble machine? Bubble machine. Okay. Now... Tim was very instructive before, um, we, before I agreed to do this. He said, I want you to put across four key points, Piers, four major messages here that people will never forget and will walk away with. And it will never be something that he has to worry about at St. Dionys. So by the, use of, uh, by the use of a number of people from the congregation, I'm going to do a little reenactment and take us back a little bit further to look at the life of Joseph Marina, <laughs> to look at the life of Joseph uh, from the perspective of the suffering that he went through and how God brought out the good at the end of his life through the bad that he endured earlier on that he slightly brought on himself but that was very much thrown upon him. And to do that, I'm going to need someone to do an impression of God. And I've gone for a heavyweight today. So, Ben, if you could... Uh, 
Now, I'm slightly nervous about the construction here of this, uh, this pulpit, because it's a little rickety, but I'm sure we've got insurance. Now, I, what we're looking for here in my little enactment is the points at which God comes out and says things or provides direction, and the rest of the time how Jacob, Joseph's father, acts in, in the context of his own... Uh, of his, own, of his own children. So I'm going to need Jacob, and I've asked Tim if he wouldn't mind coming out to be Jacob. Tim on holiday, very decent, always... Uh... So there's your hat. And here are your sunglasses. Now, a little bit of introduction on Jacob. Jacob basically is a man who... Uh, who is pretty cool. He's on the up. He's on the make. You've got, uh, he's single. He's going out in the world. He's got his blessing. He's going out in the world. He's going to make things happen. Right? So that's what we've got to remember about Jacob. That's, those are his principal concerns. Now, I've, I now want to call upon Ollie. If you could come out here. Ollie is going to play Rachel. <laughs> so that's got to go around. <laughs> Now, uh, if we could have uh, Jakey, Benji, you're going to be a sheep. Put your arms in there. Yeah. And Benji. You've got to put this on, because then you can be a sheep. No, 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 stay still. Okay, it's not too... <laughs> Marina, could, Marina, put Marina in that, because she's smaller. Okay, never work with children or small animals, or children imp doing impressions of animals. Okay, so what we want to have here is we're going to have the beautiful, beautiful Rachel over here. If you can stand over here, with God looking on, looking after the sheep. Okay, Benji, put that, put that on. Okay. Okay, if you can go over here and stand next to Daddy. Stand next to Daddy. Okay, Marina, you're a sheep as well. Anyone else who'd like to be a sheep of any age... So, Rachel, Rachel is uh, looking after the sheep. And this is what we're told in the scriptures, chapter 29, verse 10 of Genesis. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. <laughs> If you could just do, do the weeping, you can avoid the kissing. Okay, so we're getting the impression there was instant chemistry, there was instant love here. I need Alan to come up, please. Alan doesn't need any props because he does the part of Laban very well indeed, as we're about to see. If you could just stand up on the steps there. 
So Jacob decides that he's going to go, and he's going to go up to uh, Laban, who is the father of Rachel, and ask for permission to marry Rachel. And in return, he says he'll work for seven years to look after Laban's flocks, to take care of things, and to make things grow. So they enter into an arrangement. They enter into a deal. They're going to shake hands. They struck their deal. Now, Rachel, of course, immediately goes back up to be behind Laban, and Jacob comes down here to look after the sheep. Now, this is the point, and you're not to look, you're not to look over here. You've got to look in that direction. This is the point at which we have Leah, who is Laban's elder daughter, who is going to be played by my dad, which is very nice. And... No, no one here knew what part they were playing, so this really is live comedy. Now... This is what the Bible, this is what Genesis has to say about, Le about Leah. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for Rachel. Now, if you could go and stand just behind uh, Alan there. So what happens here is that... Uh, he worked his seven years. He goes up to Laban and says, right, I've done my seven years. I've done my time. I now want to marry Rachel. So that's what he's doing. He's coming up. He's coming up. My interpretation is here that come the morning after the wedding, this is what's said. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? What has happened here is that I think that Jacob might have had a tiny bit to drink the night before. And Laban did the switch. And out comes Leah with the weak eyes. And this is where I want to make the first of my points. This is the first point, as Tim asked me to do. Message number one. Don't get drunk at your wedding. You might marry the wrong person. Now, the reason I've taken us back this far is because, as most of us know, he then goes on and works for another seven years and ends up marrying Rachel. But he gets given Rachel at this point in time. So what we have here now is, if the beautiful Rachel can come forward, both of you come forward, Laban's very much in the background, Jacob's got his two wives, we've got uh, Leah, and, and if you could come this side over here. Now... What happens is, irony of ironies, Leah provides the children. Whereas Rachel, and this is my third place, um, just so you know, at uh, go-karting. Uh, Rachel has no children. And what happens here is that we have the Lord stepping in. Okay, ready with the bubbles, ready with the bubbles. Bubbles, bubbles, everyone. Okay, rock and roll. Bring on the bubbles. We have, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. So he poured out his blessing on Leah. So this is the most important thing. Now, she, she then starts having children, 
and Rachel doesn't. She names her children. I'm not going to bother mentioning the names, but she follows on. We know how in the old Hebraic tradition, there is a meaning to all the names. And enough. Enough bubbles. <laughs> the, message, the number one name is, it is because the Lord, so this is her first son, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. So quite clearly, right at this early point in time, we can see that Jacob is kind of siding with the more attractive, you know, Rachel. However, she's not producing, but we have Leah who is. Number two, son. Maybe, he's trying, maybe Leah's trying to make a little bit of a hint here. Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. Third child. Now at last my husband will become more attracted to me because I have borne him three sons. The fourth time, this time, I will praise the Lord. And I would argue that the, uh, the prize may be moving slightly over this way. A few years may have passed. Rachel's looking, you know, a little less attractive. So, but at this point, Leah is now very, very happy, and Rachel is not. So this is where I have message number two. Avoid bigamy. Do not marry more than one woman. It could lead to these problems. So that's cleared that up in the church. What Rachel decides to do is to employ his, and we won't bother getting someone else up because it's very humiliating, to employ his maidservant, Bilhar, to have two sons. So Rachel brings on Bilhar, his maidservant. Jacob has two sons. Their names were, and Rachel named them, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. The second one was called, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. Now, what we're seeing going on here is that the older brothers of Joseph, who isn't yet born, who are a little bit, they're a little bit older now. They're beginning to understand that there's this terrible tension going on between the two wives. And there's no one to tend to. Do you want some more bubbles? More bubbles. So there's no one to tend. There's no one to tend um, to... to, to um, I wonder if we should just keep that going. Um, so Leah now gets upset. So we can see the contest that's emerging here. We can see that there is a contest and that the jealousy is already starting at this point. But Jacob, who's heard these names being mentioned, is doing nothing about it. He's being very, very passive. He's allowing this whole drama to unfold. So... What happens is that uh, Leah gets upset and gives her maidservant over to Jacob, who has two more sons. And um, basically, the way he does this is he tempts, he tempts Jacob, uh, Leah, sorry, she tempts Jacob away from Rachel by, by getting her eldest son, Reuben, to come back in at, at harvest time with a bunch of mandrakes. And mandrakes are um, a type of fruit that were considered an aphrodisiac. And at the time, at, at harvest time, they were, you didn't find them. And of course, Rachel, who is desperate to have a child, who is desperate to have a child, can't conceive. As soon as she sees the mandrakes, she says, okay, uh, what do you want for those mandrakes? And she says, um, 
Leah says, I want to have um, Jacob come and spend some quality time with me. Um, so uh, message number three here, because what happens is Leah then has another two sons. God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband, and God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So message number three is very simple. Trust God and not a piece of fruit. So after this, Jacob then tricked Laban out of the best sheep. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the... So this is where we have some, uh, some bubbles from, from the Lord, saying, Jacob says, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Bubbles? No? Okay. Um, Jacob wrestles with God, as we know, and uh, that's message number four. If you're going to wrestle with God, be prepared to lose. Okay, so those are the four messages that I wanted to get across. Jacob then meets Esau. Um, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph, who had come along by now, Joseph had come along in the rear. So what do we see going on? If you're, if you're one of the sons of Leah... You're cannon fodder. You're at the front of the queue to see Esau with 400 men. And at the back, you've got Jacob, sorry, you've got Joseph and his mother, Rachel. So this, right at this point, on an ongoing basis, there's just no equality. There's no equality for Joseph. There's no equality for Leah. And it's coming from Jacob. So he's gone back. He met Esau. Everything went smoothly. And this is the point where we say, how are the sons, who are the older brothers, obviously, of Joseph, how are they growing up? And one of their sisters was raped. And they decided to get their own back. So they went in and they slaughtered every single man from the town that had, this one man had raped their sister from and then carried off all of their wives and all of their possessions. So we're looking at some nasty pieces of work. These guys are aggressive, tough guys who've, you know, grown up in the field, grown up, they're strong, and they've, they've gone for it. Um, at this point, or shortly afterwards, Rachel has her second child and very sadly dies in childbirth. She names the child Ben-Oni. It's at this point that we say thank you very much to our helpful guys, and they can all go back to their, uh, to their seats. So we have some relative stability. Um, we have some relative stability here for the, for the rest of the story to unfold. That was Joseph's early life. And what I really want to highlight is the, 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 the deep rift, the jealousy into which Joseph, having those series of dreams that we, we heard to, uh, mentioned in the, the lesson, just put fuel on the fire of that jealousy and caused his brothers, who were, as we know, you know, murderous and difficult already for, for, you know, reasons of loyalty, but that's what they were. So I want to ask the question, what of Joseph's character? What do we, what do we know of Joseph's character at, at, this, at this point of time? What can we deduce and glean from, from the scriptures? 
And I would like to say that he was uh, a number of things, none of which are particularly good. I think he was uh, cocky. He was cocky because he just went and he told all of his dreams in front of everyone that he was going to be this big, this big guy. Um, and he, he, he clearly was quite happy to, to say that in front, of, uh, in front of people. He was a competitive guy. I believe that Joseph was one of those people who's probably been to Eleven a Reef. Has anyone here been to Eleven a Reef? If you've been to Tenerife, he's been to Eleven a Reef. <laughs> we know he was spoiled, that uh, his father, obviously his mother had died, his father completely doted on him, gave him his multicolored uh, or, you know, coat without sleeves, which was a symbol that he did not need to work. Uh, we know that he was isolated. He was a lot younger than his brothers. So he was, in a, you know, the, I think the eldest brother was 14 when he was born. And he got sold into slavery when he was 17. So 31 years old for the, for the, oldest, for the oldest brother. Um, he was not a good judge of character. If, if you know, he, one of the things he was was a sneak. There is a mention, one little passage that says, he went and gave a bad report about his brothers to his father. And I don't think he's a good judge of character because when his father asked him to go out and to, you know, go and see how his brothers are getting on, he happily, gladly goes. And I think that's an illustration of the sort of the cockiness of the guy. So um, he, um, and I think he was really at this time, I think he was a little stupid because I would not have gone out to the fields when you know your brothers aren't talking to you you're going a long way from home, from the protection of your father. In the coat, out he goes. So, there was a lot of reasons for hatred from the brothers. And if you take Joseph now at this point, the suffering of God hadn't... I believe that God allowed that, those events, those chain of events, to release both Joseph and his brothers in the years to come, which I'm not going to, to dwell on. But uh, we have here, um, so let's, just co let's cover the point at which he is taken away. So he's had his dreams, he's told his father his dreams, his father hasn't reprimanded him and said after the first dream, whatever you do boy, don't say the next dream. If you're going to have any more things, do not say them, come and say them to me, don't say them publicly in front of everyone. His father has not done that. His father has allowed him to then repeat his second dream. And then his father then sends him out, unprotected, to go and see his brothers. And this is the passage as it exists. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with uh, spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers ag agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up, at, Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Now, at this point, what we see happening to Joseph, and this is kind of where I pass on to the next person next week, is that we see 
that instead of his pampering and his spoilt existence that he's had to this point, that is exchanged for a struggle and a suffering, which we know goes on for another 20 years. And I believe that it takes 20 years to sort of unwind all of those characteristics of Joseph that has sort of been allowed to be wound up, growing up in a family where his mother was the more attractive wife, his mother was the more loved woman, he was the special son, he's the special guy. Whereas the other brothers, you know, felt disgruntled about this and it was man mishandled, I believe, by Jacob. But at the end of the day, um, they responded in a sinful way. So we see him uh, re-referenced. God had to take him away from his family, his home, his dad, and his character. He was pushed from certainty of his life to faith. His brothers clearly did not feel guilty to either, well, some of them, I'm sure, wanted to murder him, but his brothers clearly didn't feel guilty about the past murder that they committed in that town where their sister was abused, was raped. And it is at this point for them that they look back and they go, well, they've sold their brother, they then go back to the father. The father weeps. He's sitting there weeping for the loss of his son for many, many days, it says in the scripture. And what I want to say is that I believe that at that point for those um, 10 boys or 10 men, for what they did that they can never speak about, they can never find you know, forgiveness for that. They have to carry that for 20 years. That was the point where they first begun to understand guilt, guilt for an action. But more than that, his life of struggle goes on to give him something his brothers could not take away. In fact, it gave him something that he could give to his brothers. And then we see the great unfolding of the plan of God for his life. And one of the things I wanted to cover was the third way. And for this, I'm going to require two volunteers. It's a little less uh, treacherous, but I'm going to have, again, Ben, because you're quite menacing looking. And then I want someone slightly slight of Bill. Why don't we have Serena? Can you come out? Serena's my sister. In all, one of the things I believe that Jesus points us to do in our lives is to look for the third way. So we're going to cover this here. Here is going the extra mile, the illustration. We're going to go for a little walk around in a minute. We've got the Roman centurion carrying his pack. Under law, he was allowed to stop anyone in Jerusalem that he wanted, being my sister, and say, you there carry my pack and look menacing. So, under the military law, he was allowed to carry, he was allowed to force this person to carry his pack for one mile. And the roads were marked, the Roman roads were marked one mile at a time. This pack uh, weighed about 80 pounds, which is the, what about the weight of an sort of a normal person, you know. So this was a, a heavy pack and a heavy pack to carry. Now, there are two ways that we would normally respond to this, but I believe that Christ points us to a, thir to a third way. The first way is we go, oh, okay, I'll carry your pack, comes round and puts the pack off. Or you go, I'm not carrying your pack, forget it, and then you get beaten up. But Christ leads us to a third way. So if you two could go for a little walk all the way around and just come back to here. 
And this carries, a, this, the reason I'm talking, I want to give this as an illustration, is that I believe that um, Joseph, through his suffering, through being led into a different type of character, led into a different type of personhood, was actually very much in the, what later we're taught by Christ, was moving from a sort of graceless, proud life into a life where he examined the other ways, the third way. And what happens is, we see the beefy Roman centurion coming back up to the front, and he is going to uh, expect to stop here at the mile marker. This is the mile marker. This is the end of going, of going the first mile. Whoa. So he stops here, and he's expecting this person to shrug the pack off because 80 pounds plus armor is pretty heavy. Military law says no more than a mile. And Christ says, keep walking, go on. Okay, so if you just stop there, because what happens is that the centurion, who is under military law, suddenly has to chase after that person to take the pack off his back because he's in breach to his commanders of the law. And that's what we're, we're called to do, um, is to find an, the, the other way, the, the further way. And I believe that everything that Joseph went through all the suffering that he went through taught him that there was another way, there was a further way um, to, to live his life and to forgive his brothers and to go on and do what he did. And I want to read one, one little thing I found. Thank you very much, guys. You can sit down. I want to read one little thing that I found before all the children have gone. This was supposed to be for the children, but it's still a little bit of fun anyway. And this is called The Butterfly and the Cocoon. A small crack appeared on a cocoon. A man sat for hours and watched carefully the struggle of the butterfly to get out of that small crack of cocoon. Then the butterfly stopped striving. It seemed that he was exhausted and couldn't go on trying. The man decided to help the poor creature. He widened the crack by scissors. The butterfly came out of the cocoon easily, but his body was tiny and his wings were wrinkled. The man continued watching the butterfly. He expected to see her wings become expanded to protect her body, but it didn't happen. As a matter of fact, the butterfly had to crawl on the ground for the rest of his life, for he could never fly. The kind man didn't realize that God had arranged the limitations of the cocoon, and also the struggle for the butterfly to get out of it, so that a certain fluid could be discharged from his body to enable him to fly afterwards. Sometimes struggling is the only thing we need to do. And I believe that God allowed the struggling for Joseph to be able, for him to be able to, to go out and something bigger and greater to come out, for him to be able to have those wings, as the analogy stands, like a butterfly. So well, if you wouldn't mind just helping me, I bought this for the children, but uh, they've all gone, but we'll do it anyway. Inside here is a little surprise. This is called a paraglider. And I thought it would be a bit of fun for people to see just how big they are. And if you could take one of those sides there and just drag that out. Oh, so we can take that bit, take this bit here and walk that way.
And I wanted, to, I wanted to finish by saying that out of something very, very small, you can get something very, very large. And that's part of the story of Joseph. Thank you. Thank you, Piers.